And the industry's, the industry's behind that for all the good reasons that you've outlined. It's to our advantage to have an attractive, safe, respectful workplace. Heavens, I mean, it's got a lot going for it already to let it be marred by this undercurrent of, of violence and, and assault. It, it just can't be part of the sector. And if it's, a, if it's a twisting of the original culture or a perversion of the original culture, we need to get the original culture back in its best expression. And there's nothing wrong with being a bit wild westy. It can be a growing experience. Well, no one's saying to not have fun. Yeah. We're just talking about, uh, you know, leveling the playing field so everyone feels safe at work. Absolutely. Nobody should feel uncomfortable going to work and in any kind of predatory manner. That's it. Free to Grow in Forestry, a podcast working to move forestry forward. Canadian Institute of Forestry and the Center for Social Intelligence proudly present the Free to Grow in Forestry podcast. The Free to Grow in Forestry initiative was launched to create a diverse and inclusive workplace culture where all Canadians feel they belong. We believe strongly that inclusive cultures not only strengthen our Canadian forest sector economy, but also create resilient and healthy communities. This podcast seeks out guests from all aspects of the forest sector, from the C-suite to every part of the underrepresented communities, to open up the dialogue on issues of concern and points of view so that everyone has greater knowledge and understanding of each other. By unearthing these discussions, we hope to stimulate greater empathy and respect for all people, opening up the forest sector to be more welcoming and accepting of everyone. For our fifth episode, we are pleased to be joined by our host, Kelly Cooper, founder and CEO of the Center for Social Intelligence, and our guest, John Betts, who is the executive director of the Western Forestry Contractors Association. With experience as a tree planter and logger himself, John discusses the past and present work environment and culture of the tree planting industry and the outlook for the future. This session was recorded live on September 14th, 2021. Okay, welcome everyone. My name is Kelly Cooper. I am the founder and president of the Center for Social Intelligence and co-lead for the Free to Grow and Forestry Initiative here in Canada. And I'm excited to be here with you today where we're speaking with John Betts, Executive Director of the Western Forestry Contractors Association. For those listeners who aren't familiar with this organization, I'll just say that the Western Forestry Contractors Association, or WFCA, is an association of contractors who provide all levels of pre- and post-harvest planning and implementation services to the forest industry, including forest engineering, timber cruising, strategic planning and timber supply analysis, nursery seedling production, civil culture services, tree planting, and stand tending, as well as wildfire management services. Companies within the sector represented by the WFCA generate more than $500 million in annual revenues and are a significant employer for many professional foresters in BC, which to me translates to hearing this organization has a hefty amount of clout in BC in terms of employment opportunities, including shaping how the industry operates. So John, thank you for being here today. Great to be here with you, Kelly. So given what we talk about on this show about gender diversity and inclusion in the forest sector, I'd like to dial in on what is going on in your particular niche of employment, specifically in the tree planting area. 
And let me say up front, our goal in this show is to create a safe space to share perspectives and engage in meaningful dialogue so we can find new insights and sometimes even common ground to shape a healthier, more respectful workplace culture in the forest sector. We want to create a greater understanding and empathy for what everyone is facing so we're able to work more collaboratively going forward. So with that in mind, I thought what might be useful today is to have you share a bit of the history on the tree planting work environment culture, what is now going on in light of recent events last year with an outpouring of negative press, and what you see on the horizon for this segment of the sector going forward. So to start, John, perhaps you can paint a picture for us about a day in the life and tree planting, say, five years ago. What was the composition of the employees in terms of gender and diversity? Uh, what were the camp conditions like? And, and what was the general culture that people were working in? Well, the, the industry from its beginning, and I, I go back to the beginning, actually. I was a, a tree planter as a junior forest ranger in 1968, the same year they landed on the moon. So, and I was one of the original people that formed what was then called the Western Civil Cultural Contractors Association in the 70s. So I've kind of had a role uh, both as an employee, as a worker course and a supervisor, and then as a contractor. And then I stepped out for a few years and pursued a career outside of the sector and then came back in. And for the last 25 years, I've been involved in what you might call moving fog or shoveling smoke, where I kind of work at forest policy and the higher levels of managing you know, forestry policy, as well as workplace safety, public relations, and so on. So I kind of have been capable of an overview and where we were at say five or ten years ago we were still and i'm going to use the collective we here uh, working from the assumption that because our industry had a large number of women in the sector compared to the rest of the resource industries that we knew of that that was inherently a good thing and it was a good thing um but no one thought at the time, say five, well, by five years ago, we were asking, let's go back a little bit further, say 10 years ago, no one had really thought to ask women what it was actually like to work in the sector. And we began to hear back at the beginning of the last decade reports coming out of universities. We saw workplace harassment identified here in BC through WorkSafe BC. I think legislation came in around 2012. I was still dwelling on, oh, are people mouthing off to one another or making abusive remarks? The idea of sexual violence or assaults or that kind of harassment was, was not unheard of, but not thought to be the central problem. But I think when we began to hear reports um, that were, you know, scandalized the public about what the demographic uh, that we actually were working with primarily, mostly young people, uh, what we were hearing at university began, it wasn't hard to sort of go, wait a second, this this unpleasant thought entered our, our sort of concept of ourselves is that we likely have the same problem here in the reforestation sector. So the lights were starting to go on by about 2015. We had also done a labor market information study and we were received the sort of startling uh, revelation that over half of those interviewed reported they'd witnessed or been victims of workplace harassment and bullying. We didn't talk about assault. That still was kind of outside of our, our range of reckoning. Um, but we, we got the first sort of very sort of strong signals that came up. And now, again, I'm taking experience that we saw somewhere else and bringing it home to us. We still had no tangible evidence yet that we had a problem in our sector, but we were able to kind of 
think it'd be wise to look. So then five years ago, I think you'd answer your question. We weren't naive anymore, but we still didn't have a real sense of the problem or a, a direction yet as to what systems or solutions we needed to implement to address it. So it was just at the beginnings of the sort of lifting the lid off the problem. Okay, so you didn't have people coming forward with their own stories or you didn't hear of anybody who was having relationships on the sites up at the camps or uh, any general cultural issues that you found to be a little bit more, I don't know, someone once put it like cowboy-like in terms of uh, a bit more wild. Let's go back and talk about the culture. I left that part out, not deliberately, but I just was giving you the timelines and milestones. Yes, of course, going back to the original, as I've said at the beginning of the interview, there always was a lot of the Wild West here. And we came up in the 70s. It was all about we're going to you know, be, buck the system. And I got to admit, some of the operations that I participated in, some of the ones I ran were pretty sketchy from a safety perspective, from being well organized. We got through in a lot of luck. Some of that luck got translated as innovation and, and great ideas and being resourceful. I'm sure there's some truth there. But the industry did get away with taking some real risks that it probably shouldn't have, but for the most part, it all worked out. And that became part of the myth of the industry. You know, you've sort of got the Berkeley free speech movement and all of that sort of early stuff, the hippies. And I, I mean, my first crew, I had people with PhDs, I had nuclear physicists, um, all kinds of, uh, and I should say men and women at the same point with degrees and they had dropped out. And here we were, you know, flaunting the system and ourselves. And it was all a great thing. So that... I'm afraid some of that, that's not a bad culture, but it that culture, yeah, the Wild West kind of is the dominant thing. And I mean, you're you're in wonderful places. Let's put this on the British Columbia landscape. You're going to places, admittedly, they've been logged, but they're still spectacular. So everything was informed by a kind of sense of everything's a bit larger than life. And you're living in tents and you're moving around and it's a great communal setting. I met my wife tree planting. I'm not the only one. So yes, there was romance. There was all the intrigues of a bunch of people, all kind of roughly the same age of disposition. I would say that in those early days, we were probably on average five to six or seven years older than what we have now. And that's a significant shift mm. over time in the demographics. Mm. But we were informed by the sort of zeitgeist of the 70s that's prevailed as kind of a an underlying culture it's a very strong culture and i'm hoping when we get to the conversation about where we can go that we can take that culture and use it to affect for better change but there is a strong culture in the sector yes so a bit of the wild west you're away from your parents you're away from authorities you're in beautiful places there's no reason not to have a wonderful time and many people do people find it transformative <laughs> what was the shock to us though and as we've realized in the last five years was while this was going on women were being assaulted women were being harassed they were mm -hmm. being bullied and it took a while but eventually we began to hear those reports and that's sort of the second part of the story. So yeah, um, there is a culture in the sector. Um, you're working hard for a living. You're feeling uh, 
you get a feeling of your own self-worth. You're not paid by the hour for showing up. You're paid for what you do. You often push yourself past the limits of what you thought you could do. So there's a kind of, people are full of themselves. And some of that energy translates into partying in some cases, into feeling maybe a bit of a risk-taking approach. Um, and you can see how that would ripen the environment for predators or for people becoming victims and so on. And I'm not, and I should say, I don't want to create the impression that the industry is all promiscuous, that it's all totally irresponsible or anything like that. But the, it, we, we basically have young people for the most part from that, in that very early twenties, late teens, early twenties, away from home, often their first time in a workplace, not having a lot of experience, similar to what we saw happening in universities and maybe enhanced a little bit. No one's got a measurement going of assaults per tree planted. Thank God we don't have a, a, a metric like that to have to own up to. But point is, it was happening in our in our sector and the, the conditions that, that allowed it to take place uh, were present. So that's the best answer to that. Well, and I can see it's a free-spirited environment, yeah. right? You've got young people, beautiful scenery, like you say. It's a very fine line between partying and abuse, right? And I can see, I, I once, uh, I, for a summer, I went up north to the high Arctic and did research. It was just a group of 12 of us. And um, you have no options for help, right? So you're it with those people. And if there was any of that going on, you'd be stuck. There's no way out. If we look at the Canadian tree planting experience, um, 6,000 tree planters in BC, probably 10,000 across Canada as a rough estimate. Uh, the vast majority of them are young people in universities. Um, they uh, occupy industry, stay of average maybe two to three years and we rotate. So there's a turnover about 20%. You start doing the math over the last 40 years that we've been planting trees, a lot of young Canadians have directly experienced tree planting and they've spoken to their friends and their family, which mm -hmm. amplifies that. Probably one of the most widely distributed Canadian experiences, either directly or vicariously, is the tree planting sector. So out of that come impressions. Mm -hmm. So if I was the forest sector in Canada, and I can't speak on part of all of them, they would definitely want these young, promising Canadians to have a very positive impression of the forest sector because they're out there in many cases planting what's been logged. They're seeing logging trucks. They are working for logging companies and they're working for contractors who have been hired by logging companies or lumber companies. Okay. So we, it, in fact, not that it's important anyway, but in a Canadian context, it's even more important, I would say, that the industry recognizes the particular trust it has yeah, in young people, first impressions of the workplace or the real workplace, first impressions maybe of being ever away from their peer groups, that they are extremely impressionable and we want them to be impressed well and we want them to be safe because they're particularly vulnerable because they don't have the life skill sets yet and they are to some extent a captive industry in that they can't just get up and go 
back to mom and dad or quit their job at the golf course and go home. They're yeah, all- you hit on a very good sales pitch to your, co- your male colleagues in the industry, right? That's exactly why they need to take action. That's part of the story, very much part of the story. So that kind of lends me to wonder about, um, you know, if the boss is somebody who is a predatory type for abuse, um, how marginalized that individual would be, it would be very challenging, right? So yeah, I don't know how they would be able to withstand staying. Did you ever have numbers of women who would just leave midstream? Or did people stay the whole time? I know it's very remote. So well, you make a good point. You, okay, the other part that makes it harder is you are at the end of the road. And that road might be 120 kilometers of gravel road. And you're in, you know, or you're up in a flying camp. I talked to a woman uh, just recently who, as it turned out, casually, we're having casual conversations. She was, ran a coffee shop down in, in Victoria and came up that she'd been planting. And I asked her about it. And then I asked, well, how were you treated? And she says, it was terrible. I had to rely on the supervisor to protect me. And that's how she got through. She had a very unpleasant time, to put it. She was never assaulted, but there was always that threat. So that was her experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so if for the anyone that was a victim, clearly there's trouble reporting it, whether you'll be taken seriously. And and we can get into all this. I mean, we're, we're the industry. The industry wasn't prepared, I think, by, at 2015, to, to deal with it. It wasn't even aware at this point that this was a problem in our sector. So that, that very first step we had to take was create some awareness. And it's one thing to put up a sign saying, you know, zero tolerance for workplace harassment or be respectful. Those are all, those are statements. But as women told us later on, it didn't mean anything if you went up to your supervisor and said, I'm being harassed by this worker who's on my crew. And the supervisor says, well, I can put you on another crew if you want. You go, well, that's not actually the right answer. So then the other part we had to start building was you had to come up with some skill sets. You had to come up with some tools. You had to come up with some ways to deal with this. And I think speaking as on the part of the industry as a whole, by around 2014 and 15, I remember the Green Party here in BC had made introduced legislation into the into parliament here to have it make a requirement that universities have processes and protocols and practices around reducing and preventing assaults on women. And let's, let's also not forget that men are sometimes victims of all this as well. Mm-hmm. That um, I, I went to them and asked, I'm, I'm in an industry and I think we've got the same problem. Likely we do. Give me some advice about where I can go, how I can. And they sent me to some of the victims advocate groups where they dealt with people who've been victims, obviously. What I found out was there wasn't really actually, as far as I could tell, someone saying, oh, here's the methods. This is what you do. We didn't have that. There wasn't a readily available body of information to just go and Will you just adopt this practice? So we had to invent for our sector, and this was a good exercise to figure out what we needed to be doing, uh, what skill sets needed to be taught, how to teach them, and how to bring everybody around. And that's really been much of what the last five years is doing. You create awareness, you create some tools, you find some allies to support you, and you try to change the practices. And it is 
not always the case, but it certainly is the worst case that if some cases, supervisors might very well be the problem. And that has been reported. Yeah, because so there's been some true. reports I've read about that where this hasn't been just recent in 2015. It's been going on for quite some time be before that. And that women had come forward to state their issues with the company they work for, the organization, the, the supervisor, the supervisor's boss. And unfortunately, a lot of this is um, word of mouth friends who work for each other and that gets all covered up. Yeah. And there's a lot of pressure to just cover it up. And that's just the way it is and suck it up and get back out there or leave. And so there, there really shouldn't be almost a like it, it was a culture hiring practice, I guess, that really is at the crux of, of that and how how it was allowed to perpetuate because um you know, it should be okay for a respectful environment. It doesn't need a lot of training. You know what I mean? It's just being a good human being. But anyway, I think that you've made the point about how things were pretty clearly. And, and I do appreciate how that free-spirited world and, and young, you know, out in the outdoors uh, can lend itself to partying and the lines can be blurred a little bit to the point where it can be harder to uh, course correct some of these things that get taken too far. So I appreciate that, but I don't want to, I'm not in any way condoning it, of course, but uh, I can see where the headspace was back then, but let's now get to where we are now or what the recent events happened, where there was a very big bright light, Sean, on this issue um, through that report that came out last spring, I guess it was in early January, uh, and it came out at your conference um, to speak to this issue more assertively and uh, and was really um, an impetus, I think, to make some changes, some real changes. And I would like it if you could share with us some of the the um, reactions to that from the people who are um, in the sector in that in that work environment that have been there along you with years of being in this industry and what they were saying about it, and also what that's causing for actions now. So you started to lend into that, bleed into that a little earlier, but if you could spell out a little bit more about that, that'd be great. Yeah, well, we, we invited the Northern Society of Domestic Peace uh, out to our camps as part of, we realized that we didn't have skill sets for counseling young people about what respect and, you know, permission and all, you know, kind of consent. What how does that look like? Uh, we were, you know, in the business of getting people to plant trees and trying not to have them get musculoskeletal injuries and keeping their trucks on the road. And now we've got another dimension. We have to be protecting them from one another, which was a bit of a, a shock of a realization. But I think the industry took that up. Northern, well, it is taking it up. Um, Northern Society of Domestic Peace was one of the organizations that we asked, that we relied on as an ally to uh, help us better deal with the problem. So we brought, they were coming out to camps and speaking to women and speaking to men and talking about these key issues about respect. And they had been visiting in quite a number of camps. At the same time, they gathered up, they did a, a survey and began to gather up reports from, from victims. And those were terrible reports. I mean, they weren't, to be honest with you, a surprise. We had been working from the premise and we had evidence by that time, reason we brought Northern Society on board as one of the groups was, we need some help with this. So yeah. what, what that did was it was bruising for the sector because we were working hard to deal with a, a difficult problem. And I'll give you some of the kinds of challenges that 
you know, we, you deal with. So we're talking about partying and that, you know, just the idea of, well, we just end all partying in camps um, as a remedy. Some companies have tried that. And then what they found was that the workers would then drive to town, the mm -hmm. 60 or 70 kilometers of town and get in trouble in town, assault mm -hmm. each other in the motel rooms, if that's what was going to happen. And not to say that this was mm -hmm. going on constantly, but that the risk of that happening. And then they're driving home on resource roads. So some companies who have so-called a party a camp ethic is actually a managed party and the employer who happened to be a woman organized parties and as it turned out her whole principle was to in the end people were safer because they supervised the parties they sort of had the rules of engagement laid out yeah i was gonna so ask had, so you, you could see we were structured we're beginning to try to structure this that made made more sense mm -hmm. so when NSDP's report, you know, describing these came out, it added color to what the colder statistics or evidence that we had. Um, it added color, shall I say to that, and not a good color, a bruising color, I would think, to the mm -hmm. sector. But what it did was, if there was anyone who already wasn't on board with this commitment, I'm talking about employers, they all attended the workshops subsequent to that. And we already had strong turnout. I would say that we were doing uh, a lot of good work, still trying to sort out, create, you know, you have your institutional approaches, you create systems, you create standards, you train people to implement them, you go back, you do that. That's the institutional approach. It's not, it is yet to produce a cultural shift, having people come in and talk to your workers about respect and, and, and speak in candid terms about things that your supervisor might not be so good at speaking to. That was great. We've also had to examine who are we making supervisors? Yeah. Um, not that all of them are predators by any stretch. Very few of them are, but you only need a handful to, to do incredible damage if you think about it. But we began to reevaluate maybe the person that is your hardest working, most aggressive, a mod, a a male or a female sort of person may not be the have the right empathies, the right uh, patience, any of the right skill sets. So we've had to reevaluate who really are our best supervisors. And we've also had, and we've developed it now, ways of assessing whether they're competent or not. So those systems, again, are just being implemented. And it takes a long time to develop these systems to pull together a supervisor competency assessment guidebook took about two years so so you're saying these things are now in place that you've gone through these new systems and you have code of conduct and enforceability and people are aware of what the expectations are on site and if they do not what the consequences are the industry just endorsed principles of respectful conduct as an addition to the broader statements in our code of membership conduct which it, it will say something about respect workers' rights and prevent workplace harassment, but the principles actually go into more detail. So that is in the early stages now of seeing if we want to make that an industry standard where you actually get recognized as having effective systems. Now, this isn't an inspection. It would be an audit. Do you have a system? Do you have, have that in place? These are the things that we can do, you know, as an, or, as an industry as a whole. You want certainly want to have a brand that says if you're a young person, male or female, that you will be coming to workplaces where we respect everyone's right to be left alone. You will be encouraged about what is respectful 
behavior and consent. You will be made aware of what the consequences are in terms of your employability. If you violate these rules, you will be told, meanwhile, what to do if you're the victim of one. And hopefully by, and we meanwhile are teaching our supervisors and stories and, and people about how to properly treat and respond to complaints from individuals on, that, that are among your crew and so forth. I said earlier that the industry has a strong culture Okay. And um, I'm thinking that we're talking about changing the culture within a sector. Admittedly, we're a subset of a larger, largely misogynistic culture. I'm not using that as an excuse. I'm just thinking that um, we didn't invent sexual assaults in, in the tree planting sector. It's, it's a societal problem and it expresses itself in the workplace and ours is a workplace. And so we as employers have a legitimate duty to limit that and, and, and change it. The fact that the same culture that may be tolerated or allowed for this kind of abuse can shift around. And I'm, what would be the indicators of that? Well, I've talked at length about the institutional sort of changes that we've tried to make as a, those are the tools that are available to us as an association. You know, we create a, the whole thing awareness. Mm -hmm. I'm also seeing women's groups come up and I'm seeing, you know, the conversations on, on Reddit and other social media. I t I'm really encouraged to see women come forward, form groups. Um, they're kind of finding their way. They're, they're informed by various. Some of them are mad about what's happened to them and understandably concerned about that. Others are, you know, trying to educate their, their immediate the people they work with and they're kind of having an influence on the companies. And that's really good. I think this groundswell part is probably the most important the most important thing it's great for me as a talking head to be able to list to you and provide a convincing inventory of all the things we're doing and they all are worth doing and they all are having some effect but the groundswell that we're beginning to see occur in the industry and i would like to be able to say that uh, bystanders are no longer standing by i can't say that but bystanders are aware not to stand by we hear reports that some companies have done a very good job and they enjoy a reputation around the industry if you want to go and not get hassled go and work on that crew because they really have their act together on that front yeah and that and that for them is a major bonus because they have less turnover there's less hassles and everything right so it's, it's good on so many levels you're you're promoting the idea of women coming forward which as you can imagine takes a lot of courage my question to you and where i see things as we go forward is is creating that safe space for men to call out their male counterpart. So as you say, bystander, it's like, yes, that's a nice way of saying, you know, watching. But the real heart for me of this is that men who do disagree with it say something because they will be heard. Unfortunately, women can be dismissed. They can frankly not feel the courage to speak up in the first place. And I'm not saying that that's a great thing. I mean, it's women need to have that assertiveness skill uh, built into them too, to feel confident to go in and say, hey, you know what, this is wrong. But I can tell you from my own experiences, it's not easy. Okay. And especially at that young age, and especially if the predator is your boss, chances of that happening, that speaking up bit, not going to happen. So they're more likely to leave, feel crushed by the experience and basically try and bury it before it ever gets airtime. So to me, you want to make a difference. You want to do something real. You want to do it now. You want to do it tomorrow. You get the men who are complicit to this act, who are the friends and family, 
who are running these companies who know they know. I, I don't believe they don't know. I think these guys who prey on these situations, I think they probably brag about it. And so I think they know. And everybody knows who is doing that kind of behavior. And that guy keeps getting hired year after year and women come and go every year or whatever. And, and so it continues. So I feel that there needs to be that awareness brought to this conversation and that shift to who's getting the airtime on this uh, to speak up. Men have to feel comfortable speaking up. We have to train these guys to say, you know what, this is not the right behavior uh, for one, for sure. We have to train women to feel more assertive, to speak up when it, anything just starts to get uncomfortable. Got to say, hey, we got some boundaries here we need to put in place. There needs to be code of conduct, of course, and enforcement for that conduct that the women and any other diverse person can feel supported by the organization. But the guys themselves, I think, and I saw you catch a smile there. I think you, you know, it's the, that's, where the, that's where the heart of this matter lies. I can't agree more with you on that. And, and I think it, it is, you know, I mentioned that the women were coming forward because we've entertained them at the, uh, at the conference. You, you're right. You're probably not going to see men against uh, women being harassed. You're not going to see a committee like that forming, I don't think. But part of the education that we've been trying to bring to the camps and so forth is very much aimed at that. It can't be a you can't be complicit or, or I, I think what we're going to, I think that would be one of the leading indicators of us really having the cultural change. And Kelly, that may be the last thing that occurs is that men don't tolerate the BS either. They don't see it. They want, they don't want to see it. They can't, we make better jokes is, you know, mm -hmm. we, we can't be double entendre that. I think you're seeing some of that happen. If you go to the best crews, um, and it's interesting that one of the better crews is, is, well, is well aware from the LGBTQ community. They know what it's like to be on the receiving end of as a minority. So mm -hmm. there is zero tolerance for that. And it doesn't mean they don't have a good time. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they don't crack jokes or they get along, but they're just, we're not making those kinds of jokes. Do you see, kind of and this is sort of lending us into the future view of what things could be to make it a better place. But do you think that having, having these underrepresented people in senior positions, they don't have to be taking over the world. Okay. It's not everybody, but can you see how having these underrepresented groups in senior positions can make the difference to shifting the workplace culture just by sheer fact that they do get it and they are role models and they can lead by example with their behavior. One of the things we've recognized is that we do need more diversity in the sector, both writ large. It tends to be, because of the sort of hiring, tends to be primarily middle-class white people that meet each other at university and recommend it. So that means for us, just looking at practically, wow, you're leaving out an awful large potential workforce there if you're just concentrating on that. Now, admittedly, in Canada, that's a large component. But we're well aware of the fact that just from, a, you know, the industry needs to diversify uh, both in gender and in terms of particularly in supervisory role. In fact, I, I, I know that that's a, some companies have made a major effort for lots of good reasons because you want people to stay with you. If you're not hiring women to be supervisors, then you left out half your workforce. So people are aware of that. And um, th this is this is sinking in these ideas. They've they've taken root. And again, we're at that point in the change where 
I'm not saying it's all dark out there, but you do look at, so where are the brighter lights? And I already mentioned one of the companies and there's others that are in the same boat, but because it's such, it's so well recognized, you, you look at what are the things they're doing? Well, you've got a diverse gender base and, and it may very well reflected in ethnic as well as religious and other dispositions. What you've got a really good crew. I mean, that that's something that I think we're going to have to work on and we already are working on it as a sector, particularly, I think the main thing I talked about supervisors, we will be not only assessing supervisors for their general competencies, but we will be looking at when we hire, what are the attributes that make a good supervisor? And it'll be a list of say six traits. And whether the person has been a highballer or is a handsome male or a charismatic woman or anything, it's going to be no. Are they responsible? Are they empathetic? Uh, whatever. And I'm not trying to give away the ending. That that will be, I think, those will, those will be the standards of care that the industry is aspiring towards. And we're already, as again, I'm looking at using this bright lights metaphor. People were solving this problem long before the WFCA officially took possession of the problem. There were smart companies, and that's typically what happens in any intractable sort of problem. Individuals at the front lines come up with solutions, and then we try. We look for those and try to scale them up. So I'm saying that there, there is, I've seen women exhibit leadership. You're quite correct to say men need to do the same. Can't say I've been able to measure or notice that, but that's certainly clearly part of what needs to shift. How can we shift that? Well, we certainly can have more women uh, take on roles in super, supervisory positions because that will set a better example and bring people forward to go, I'm in a good environment where I can say something. Now, there um, needs to be accountability for behavior, but also enforceability, right? So that say a super female supervisor calls out her peer, she can do so safely knowing the organization has her back. I mean, and that's yeah. what helps you as an organization to, to profit as we talked previously, because there's no, first of all, there's no bad press, very helpful. And secondly, uh, those you've hired are wanting to come back the next year. So looking at the, like you say, the criteria for hiring is one big piece, right? So that you have the right kind of people choosing EQ skills as criteria will help to shift the workplace culture and targeting men, because that's the majority who are there, is um, the root of that. Yeah, we can't have bad examples running yeah. the show. And that's that's a fact. We we are, you mentioned um, serial offenders. We know we have them in the sector. They're not making excuses. It's difficult to get rid of people on the strength of allegations that they're creepy or that they've made assaults. I mean, we have, I should also say, we have taken away perpetrators in handcuffs from camps. Okay. okay. That has happened. Okay. And that sends a pretty strong message. I'm not, I mean, it's, there's nothing, things are not being swept under the rug any longer. I mean, we've, we've also had, we've been surprised by, it's never as clear cut as you wished it could be. And I, I think, you know, that even we still, no one can define what consent is. I mean, it's still in the courts as to 
what consent looks like. And I'm not, again, using excuses here, but um, when it comes down to a he said, she said situation, it becomes very hard to sort these things out. So the idea is let's not have them happen in the first place. But we've, we've been through some pretty rough scenes in camps where camps have got divided, where they've been half supporting the so-called victim and the, and the other so-called perpetrator. And you, I mean, having skill sets to deal with this, it can get pretty intense out there in a, an enclosed environment, a long way from outside help. So contractors, you know, we're dealing with it. It's a, you lift the lid off this, as we've done. It's yeah, not, change doesn't take place overnight. So I appreciate that. No, no. What, what can you tell our listeners today about, uh, to someone out there who's listening and thinking, I was thinking about being a tree planter. I was thinking about telling my kids to be a tree planter, but what can you tell them to help them feel safe with that decision? The industry has faced up or is facing up to a broad societal problem that finds expression in the opportunities that its its work entails. Now, that sounds like I'm trying to say it's society's problems, but I think the industry has also owned up that certain parts of its culture, certain some of its practices, some of its turning a blind eye that it has in the past uh, has aided and abetted in that. And the industry is aware of that. I cannot say to anybody, you'll be absolutely safe. I couldn't guarantee that to any woman in our society at the moment, but I'm thinking that you're stepping into a sector where if you ask the right questions of your employer, whether they have a sexual harassment program in place, we're trying to set up a certification program so you can see that clearly stated. If you look out for the best signs, you have to be very careful about social media I see a lot of reports there that I think are not fair and are, are not. It, it, I think that's a problem for people. It, we've, we've been able to use social media, I think, positively, but there are still many accounts that I think are troubling and that they identify companies in ways that I think are probably not fair. Uh, but they've also been effective in drawing attention to occasionally to problems, and that's not to be denied. But I think you're going to be you're stepping in an industry where where uh, we're well aware of the problem. We're working to uh, build up, as I said, uh, systems to uh, and create safe places to create a spot where you can still have a great time planting, but you, you will be respected and that great strides are, are being made. They're uneven. Some companies, I think I would still not recommend people work for because I'm not liking what I hear. I mean, we, have a, we have a safety advocate who reports to me about his work in the field. Okay. And it certainly is, he can tell me, these companies really have it together. So that this might week. be a way for people so they can find out, they can contact your association and you have some kind of sense of who's good and who's not so good. And you I, have I think you could, I potentially think you certification start. that can help yeah. indicate where, where people are at on these things. We have to be careful because we can't be sued. You know, our, yeah. our members, but I think you could start off if they're WFCA members, is a good place to start. Okay. That means there's a level of awareness going on that may not be the case on another one, okay? these the, Our members show up at our conferences. They've sat on, listened to panels about women talking about what it's like to be in the sector. They've taken that home and reflected on how would that apply to me? Is it possible I'm making that same mistake? And some of them have realized, yeah, I probably have been making that same mistake. So there are... There are lots of good reasons to come planting trees, and there are lots of good companies to work for. 
start with the WFCA membership, look for indications, ask questions about what their sort of harassment and bullying programs look like. And it can't just be, oh, we have zero tolerance for harassment and bullying. Mm-hmm. There and needs I, to be enforcement. Work. Yeah. Like, like, show me how you're enforcing this. Because I would say this is also an issue, as I said a little bit earlier, I seem to be advocating for men, but there needs to be, <laughs> yeah, I've heard of stories where men have had been in camps and people have busted into their bed space and peed on them thinking it was the bathroom. And like, this is unacceptable behavior, male or female. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is going to lend itself to other kinds of conversations that basically ups the bar on behavior for everyone. And that uh, currently a lot of guys just fluff it off because they're like, oh man, you know, you shouldn't have done that. And they just sort of move on. But that level of behavior, code code of behavior could use some, uh, like a facelift, right? Yeah, these these colorful stories, if you just kind of look at them a little deeper going, what, what's that signaling? Um, maybe you need to have an alcohol problem or system mm-hmm. in camp. I mean, like I said, companies are doing that. They, they, are, they don't lend themselves to real binary solutions, switch off on. You're always dealing with a gradient of behavior you're dealing. But I think, I think, it's, I think it's fair to say the shift, you know, the Doppler effect or whatever it is, the light shift is going in the direction it needs to be doing. And it's been through five years at least of awareness, some bruising bad press, uh, which was not, I won't say it was undeserved, but it it galvanized the few people that were going to be motivated, were motivated by that. It, uh, I think we also said it's a consequence of lifting the lid off what is an awful problem. Mm-hmm. And if you lift the lid off something like that, then yeah, you get it. Some of it lands on the industry and, and then you have to deal with that. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I still think the brand for tree planting work in most the vast majority of cases is still a positive one. And I'm, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to be speaking to an industry on behalf of an industry that is dealing with it, a difficult problem and dealing fairly well with it and has some distance to go. And I look forward to the day when we can, I can tell you, you know, the culture really has shifted. Yeah, and it takes time, as we say. So tell us, John, where you see things being in, say, three years. Five's a bit far. Three's more in your grasp. <laughs> Yeah, don't don't ask me to predict the future. Yeah, but I mean, given all that you said, that things are shifting, there is awareness. With awareness usually comes action. So uh, if we're at that milestone, what actions do you see across the sector unfolding in the next couple of years that are going to lead to this workplace culture environment that we've talked about today? We're going to be selecting our supervisors based on the best attributes that make good supervisors. We're going to assess those those existing supervisors for their competence held up against a, a current criteria that we have in place. We're going to develop a audit. This is again uh, in its early stages, but where companies will be audited to see if they have in place what I would say a reasonable test of effective programs in place. Okay. So that's sort of the institutional framework. We will also be able to point to, this is the training that we use uh, to develop uh, in terms of implementing our systems. And you'll be able to see better human resource agreements 
between employers and employees where they're made well aware of the standard of behavior that's expected of them. It'll be founded on the principle that we're here to work primarily. This is a workplace, so you need to be respectful. So it'll be clear defined set of rules for what we expect of you and also what we expect of you if you are victimized. Mm -hmm. And we will then also declare what you can expect of us Mm-hmm. If you if you re- have to come and say this this has happened, so we're we're talking about uh, again. I'm talking about sort of systems, standards, uh, brand, if you will. Uh, you know that a promise, shall I say, made from the industry to to workers, and I'm I'm hoping to see again what I would call on the cultural side. Uh, more women coming forward and saying we've had enough or demanding that or challenging behaviors. And as you quite rightly indicate, I wanna see support from men, from the young men here. This is something for them to grow up. God knows what they've been raised on, what attitudes have been brought into their heads, how many of them are in that simple, quick thinking part of their brain that doesn't think straight or think well or think reflectively, that that's really not going to happen. So those groundswell ideas, I think, also have to take root. They're going to have to be, I think, uh, fostered by good examples set by employers um, and also supervisors, as you say. The predators will have to be told to leave the industry or caught. I mean, there's no way that we can continue to shop around people who have histories of abuse and assault. They st- we've got to deal with that. And we're now working with some, we're getting legal advice on what we can do. So I guess another indicator is that the predators will not be allowed to persist in our sector. Um, the few that are there, but like I said, you don't need that many. And the fact that someone can return year in, year out and continue to operate like that doesn't say anything particularly good about the industry if they can find a home mm-hmm. in our sector and not get rid and that has to do with seasonality and a, a number of things and being able to work for multiple employers. But within staying within the Human Rights Act, that's another thing that we got to be doing. So that's a that's yeah, I a, would say that I would say that setting up a contract with that person. Well, I would say they can't sign a contract until that the certain stipulations apply. And if they get they get their one more contract, but under these quite clear rules, and if they blow it, they're gone. And that is the zero tolerance. And I would say that's where the industry is at in terms of there is no, no room for wiggle room any further with these guys. Like, even if they, like, you can't, you can't accuse them for past, you know, misdemeanors if they've been in an old contract or something, but you can say, listen, this is the terms now going forward. And we're going to have to have like screening on if you even get into this opportunity or not. And should they, then there's certain rules that apply with definite, clear consequence. And it has to be universal. You can't, that alleged predator cannot just go, well, okay, fine, I'll just go work down the road. And that's, yeah, and that's what I've heard has happened as well. So yes, it has to be, and that's where you come in, right? Because if you're the guy who's at the the focal point of all these players, it is incumbent upon you to, to make that happen. Yes, and that again would be, Again, there are there are rules, there are human rights. We've got people about allegations. It's complicated, but I think we need to work out a system that it's universally clear that if you are engaging this behavior, it's not just that you are no longer working for this company, that 
you should not be able to work in this sector again, that it has mm-hmm. real consequence. Otherwise, yeah. it's just like, well, I, I'll go slap on the wrist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what? Mm-hmm. I'll go yeah. find someplace else. Yeah. So working against that is the fact that we are shorthanded in the mm-hmm. sector. Um, and we'll, th- these will all prove to be challenges and they will add on to all the unknowns that are perched ahead of us over the next three years. Mm-hmm. But to go back to my original position, I think we've advanced a lot in the last five years. I'm, we haven't stopped women being assaulted yet in the sector. I can't make that claim, but it's perhaps a consolation, but fewer women are being assaulted and the signs are that in the future, fewer women will be assaulted and we'll reduce that. I would like to be able to say so that it's not happening in our sector. And I just think that that's the only, I can't say we're gonna tolerate a certain number. I, I mean, it, that has to be the goal that we set. And the industry's, the industry's behind that for all the good reasons that you've outlined. It's to our advantage to have an attractive, safe, respectful workplace. Heavens, I mean, it's got a lot going for it already to let it be marred by this undercurrent of, of violence and and assault. It it just can't be part of the sector. And if it's a, if it's a twisting of the original culture or a perversion of the original culture, we need to get that original culture back in its best expression. And there's nothing wrong with being a bit wild westy. It can be a growing. Well, experience. no one's saying to not have fun. Yeah. We're just talking about. Uh... You know, leveling the playing field so everyone feels safe at work. Nobody should feel uncomfortable going to work and in any kind of predatory manner. That's it. Well, thanks for your time, John. I don't want to keep you any longer. We've had a great chat today. Uh, But thank you very much for your time, your insights, your perspective, and uh, sharing with us uh, all that's going on in the sector. Um, It is interesting. It is in transformation, I would say. And uh, I appreciate all the efforts you're doing to make it a better place. And I appreciate your work too. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. We'll be in touch. Gender, diversity, and inclusion are crucial to the advancement of a thriving and resilient forest sector. As we continue to grow and change, we all have a role to play in making our sector a place where everyone has the support they need to succeed and thrive. For more information on how you can take action and help make a difference, follow Free to Grow in Forestry on social media or visit us at www.freetogrowinforestry.ca. And if you have a story you think should be heard about an experience you have had or what you'd like to see happen in the Canadian forest sector workforce, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at freetogrowinforestry at cif-ifc.org. Together, we can move forestry forward.